guys, welcome to our talk today. I'm joined here by Steve. <laughs> I'll let you introduce yourself a little bit. Why are you qualified to be here? So uh, apart from being a father of three rambunctious boys who I feel like I de-escalate on a daily basis, <laughs> I've been a MERS partner for quite many years and also a certified non-violent crisis intervention instructor for uh, a few years. NBCI. All right. So we are here to really hone in on some issues that you're going to encounter on your ED rotation and hopefully long-term when you all become ED providers. Um, so just a little bit about some background information about what we're talking about today. I just wanted to kind of go over the history of how we got to this point. Um, so there was a deinstitutionalization for psychiatric patients that occurred in the 1960s. And this really resulted in significant gaps in care. And what I mean by gaps is that these patients that were previously housed in long-term state facilities were essentially left with nowhere to go, nowhere to live. So from 1960 to 2006, there was a study done that showed that psychiatric beds decreased from an estimated 400,000 beds to less than 37,000, which is a huge and dramatic drop. Um, so because of this, the ED has really become this like last safety net or last you know, beacon of hope for these uh, vulnerable patients. Uh, and it's estimated that about one in eight ED visits now is because of mental and or substance abuse disorders. So it's not an uncommon problem. Um, you know, a lot of times what's more needed in these situations are societal or social interventions. Uh, you know, the patient having a lack of housing, you know, getting social work involved may be more helpful than what you learn in terms of medical interventions. So think of those things. These are a group of people that may be, you know, ignored or lack primary care resources. So any programs that you can involve that factor those in are really going to help and benefit these patients. Um, so from more of a, you know, what you're used to in terms of a history and physical exam standpoint, the history and the review of systems may be somewhat confusing, if not non-contributory in a lot of these patients, but things to focus on just in general. Your objective as an ED provider, guys, is to really rule out something organic. So, Steve, have you ever seen something, you know, where they're like, oh, that patient's just, you know, acting kind of crazy, but, you know, really the patient had a medical issue. Have you seen that in your career? I think over the course of my career, there's, there's many examples of that where the easy answer is to go to this person is crazy or has some psychiatric diagnosis. Right. Uh, but in the end, it was, you know, sepsis, some metabolic syndrome, uh, head injury yep. or other etiologies. I've seen that too. Yeah. So subdurals, um, trauma that may be seen as like, you know, non, you know, severe or like incidental trauma, especially in the elderly, the extremes of age, especially if they have no psych history, look at their history. Are they having fevers? Are they having coughing? Any weird rashes, petechial lesions, headaches, trauma? Um, really the one that kind of like evens things out in terms of what we're able to do from a provider standpoint is the physical exam. So this is something that is more objective, I would say, rather than the history and the review systems, which may prove, like I said, troubling to decipher. The physical exam may help you. And you know, I'm really big on vitals. They're vital. They're super vital when it comes to this population. So really look at the vital signs. Um, that's going to tell you a lot of information. What is their neurologic assessment? Are they having, you know, a fluctuating level of consciousness? Are they having a GCS that's less than what we would call normal? Um, any focal neurologic findings? Any evidence of trauma? Raccoon eyes, battle sign, um, abrasions, lacerations, anything? Any, you know, skin findings? Like I said, rashes, purpura, jaundice, um, mental status examination. And, you know, any signs of visual hallucinations would be, you know, 
concerning physical exam features that might suggest an organic cause. So that sort of rounds out what my intro here. Anywhere from 7 to 10% of patients admitted to psych wards actually have an organic condition. They actually have a medical condition that should have been identified. So meningitis, sepsis, toxic, toxic processes, you know, Tylenol toxicity, um, neuroleptic malignant syndrome, hepatic encephalopathy, all of these um, thyroid functions. So um, think of your endocrine system as well. DKA, traumatic conditions. So, you know, all of these are our jobs to rule out as the ED clinician. Now, lab testing is pretty robust when it comes to medical clearance, and that's what they're going to call this. So there's like a lab panel order set that you're going to see when you work in the ED, and it's medical clearance for psych patients. And it's just a huge laundry list um, of, of different labs, you know, your basic labs, your CBC, your metabolic panel, but also any tox screens, um, you know, all those things. EKGs are done as part of the screening process. It's really pretty extensive. And like I said, it's a um, menu of items that you just, you just click, you know, psych uh, screening and it'll order all the things for you. Um, so I'm not going to list all of them here, but really all this testing is pretty low yield and doesn't really change um, you know, our, our outcomes, but it is part of the process. So keep that in mind whenever you are, you know, beginning your rotations, um, that evaluation process. So, you know, no matter how well-trained we are in the ED and Steve here is going to go over all of the training that he's received in terms of de-escalation, which is super important. Um, we use it all the time with the boys, right? Oh yeah. <laughs> de-escalation. Um, sometimes there are needs for physical restraints and chemical restraints in terms of medication dosing. Uh, we like to call it the B-52s, right, Steve? Um, so why is it called that? Yeah, so uh, Benadryl, 5 Haldol, and 2 of Ativan. Right, B-52, it's a bomb. They're going to be out. Nobody, have you ever seen anyone, like, be functional after a B-52? I can think of one or two uh, patients that maybe needed extra dosing or uh, additional uh, medications, but typically it does the job. Yeah, when, when pretty thoroughly. Yeah. Um, and that's IM dosing most of the time. So if patients get to that point, it's because they are combative, they are violent, they are out of control with continuous um, outbursts. It's not just like they called you a bad word, right? Like I've been called plenty of things. What have you been called? Uh, everything under the sun and uh, mostly inappropriate things I can't repeat on air. <laughs> uh, but if I can add on to that as well. So to Natalie's point, this isn't just for someone. Dr. Smith. Dr. Smith. <laughs> Uh, so if I, it's not just for people saying mean words or uh, being just verbally threatening. This is for someone uh, restraining someone is if they are um, imminently causing harm to themselves or to others. And in the nursing world, we always say uh, defer to your departmental organizational policies because you will find some different policies wherever you work in or inside hospitals, in clinics, and they'll have uh, very thorough criteria that are governed by regulatory agencies, joint commission and whatnot. Uh, and anytime someone is restrained, there must be a really thorough exam from providers and lots of documentation from nurses. And so yes. it's a big a deal. You can't just, you know, physically restrain someone without good reason. Um, and we do not do that lightly. But the medications, you do need to know those as a functioning clinician. You need to have that on the, you know, ready to go in the back of your mind at all times. You need to know meds and dosing to be able to just dole out a verbal order to your nurses because nobody wants to be waiting around for you to go, you know, figure out dosing or an order for an actively combative patient. Um, so B52s, Benadryl, 50 milligrams, five of Haldol, two of Ativan. That'll do the trick in almost all cases, I would say. All right, so I'm going to let you take it away, Mr. Expert in NBCI or nonviolent crisis intervention. What are the things that we really need to know today? 
Uh, so we'll go over a few things, um, but really before we kind of get started, I would say everyone listening to this and, and you as well, Dr. Smith. Ha, that's right. Um, I, I posed two questions. Thinking of an example, whether it be in a clinical setting or in, in life, right? We deal with escalating folks anywhere, really, not just in our work lives or clinical lives. What were the first signs that something was going wrong? I don't know. I mean, I can think of, you know, everyday examples um, and also clinical examples where it's kind of clinically, it's almost like we're so busy that it gets to the point of requiring medical intervention um, with escalation, escalated behaviors um, where we could have, if we really paid attention, probably, you know, hit some of this off before it got to that point. So, I mean, like tone increasing, cadence of speech increasing. Those are some early signs that, you know, hey, this person might be getting agitated. What do we need to do? What do we need to be thinking about? Yeah. And then uh, a second question, how did you react to that behavior in that situation? What did you do? I think, you know, for me, I really like to engage with, you know, how we got to this point, really acknowledge feelings. I think that helps with things. Like I can see that you're feeling stressed. Is there anything I can do about that? You know, do you want another turkey sandwich? I'm all about the turkey sandwiches, right? That's what we have to eat in the emergency department. Give them all the things. That Never can... hold back turkey sandwiches. <laughs> right? It's so simple, but I find it so effective. Food helps. Absolutely. Um, so just ask people, what do they need? Like, I notice you are looking a little agitated. What can we do about that? Absolutely. All right. So as we kind of um, dive in deeper, a little some stuff, I, I think the first big key takeaway I want everyone to bring home is all behaviors, and I mean all, are a form of communication. It's really up to us as healthcare professionals to dig deeper to understand what is being communicated. So again, I think everyone, to your point, is busy and tasky, yes. especially in emergency departments, but really all throughout the hospital setting and clinic settings in life, that we might miss some things. And we want to really easily cast off folks as crazy. But often you will find people are acting out or escalating behaviors for a reason. And if you usually take the time to discuss things, you can find out. Does that yeah, I think that's a really good point. Because even whenever I've been called names or, you know, a patient is just seeming rude or aggressive, there's always some sort of story behind that. You never know someone's personal walk of life or what they have gone through to get to the point where they are. Most of these people, guys, have stories and histories that you can't even imagine. Um, so always keep that in the back of your mind and never take things personally is something, a good rule of thumb. Yeah, that's a great point. I think I remember one of my first few behavioral health patients, I was a young ED nurse on orientation. I had a, uh, let's just say a, a negative interaction with a patient. I left the room and wrote that off person as, as crazy and said, man, that person's ridiculous. And my preceptor said, just take a look at their chart. And they had a, a laundry list of uh, contributing factors of why they had negative coping mechanisms and why they were presenting as they were. Uh, and it was enlightening to me, right? Cause I think, as smart as we all could be and we think we're prepared, sometimes in being caught up in tasks, we forget the human aspect of healthcare. And we are supposed to be there to be non-judgmental and treat the patient best we can. Yeah, even with the best intentions, we all take biases into our field of practice, um, intentional or unintentional. And it's just really important to recognize that because these biases can influence our decisions. So, you know, it's not your, you, we don't need to just, you know, get frustrated with people they're here for a problem. It's your job to help to the best of your ability. So let's go into some ways that we can help these patients. Yeah, yeah. So uh, to your point of, of being influential on one another, 
uh, I think a lot of healthcare professionals look at events, uh, either, you know, post kind of debrief or looking ahead at situations and they only consider their own point of view. Uh, and I urge everyone to really look at everyone involved in a situation, whether it be potential or in the past to learn from and try to look at how we, and not just the patients or other folks could positively or negatively impact a situation. Uh, and looking at NVCI, nonviolent crisis intervention training, uh, that is an integrative experience of what it's called. And so there's different stages of escalation where we play a part in it, and it could be negative or positive, right? So if a uh, patient or individual is exhibiting anxiety, which is a change in typical behavior, and to your, your point, um, Dr. Smith, what you said earlier, <laughs> yeah, pacing, tapping, increasing uh, tone or volume, something has changed. When we start seeing that happen, we should not ignore it. We should be supportive, be non-judgmental, uh, and really start engaging the patient or individual to see what we can do about it, kind of curtail it off before it gets to a head. Yeah. And you have some, you know, interesting stories from your time in the PDD. I specifically remember, you know, dealing with different medical diagnoses, um, psychiatric diagnoses in children. But if you put yourself in those shoes, you know, these kids are being held for days, sometimes weeks in this tiny room, no toys, no nothing to play with. I mean, I would go insane. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. So. And just so when I used to teach this course and even have uh, new grad nurses when I was an educator on orientation to that very uh, same point, I used to tell everybody, consider how you would feel if I said, this is the only food you can eat. These are the only channels of TV you can watch. You have to turn off this TV at a certain time of day. You can't leave this room unless you go to the bathroom or take a shower when I say you can. Oh, I have some coloring books for you if you want those. I have limited reading options. And you're basically going to have one view all day of someone watching you. And you're stripped of your belongings, right? Yep. So that one of the first things that we do whenever that someone's brought to the ED is we get them out of their street clothes. We put them in a gown. So they're in this gown thing. And they're taken of all their belongings. And, you know, oftentimes they don't have communication with friends and family. So this is really, you know... I just, I just urge you to put yourself in that mentality, put yourself in that Absolutely. space. Yeah. And many times it's, it's an abrupt situation that brought them there. And so it's not a, a slow uh, burn, so to speak. It gets very heated, very quick. They show up to you, need your help and things can escalate very quickly. Steve's taking a water break. <laughs> you couldn't see it. <laughs> okay. So where are we at on what we need to know for NBCI? All right. So the integrative experience talked about anxiety and being supportive. Uh, you also uh, interact with many individuals who get defensive, right? So they are trying to protect themselves from what they uh, is a real or perceived challenge. Mm -hmm. And this where uh, we need to really be kind and be clear and be direct in how we approach uh, somebody. So clear direction, clear limits, right? We are being respectful. We're providing simple rules, reasonable rules, and not taking things personal. Um, I think I've seen many situations over the years <clears throat> where nurses take uh, verbal outbursts as very personal, but very rarely is it ever a personal attack. It's someone challenging a rule, challenging a system, challenging the situation. And it's us to say, hey, here's our policies and procedures. Hey, if you do this, this can happen. If you do this, this won't happen. Right, and so be, clear consequences. Yeah, That's and, like what we do with the kids. Exactly, right. it, it works Some, on kids. Sometimes. Sometimes. 
Not so much with Eli. That one. And this is where, you know, folks, like I, I think, control. yeah, yeah. <laughs> on the, on the healthcare side, I think take reasonable questions as unreasonable or challenging. You know, there are challenging questions where someone might say, what are you going to do? Well, that's mm. a challenging question, right? You yeah, can redirect that and say, well, you know, I used to say, I really don't want to do anything. I'm sorry. It's very <laughs> I don't late. don't want to do anything. It's very late. I'm tired. How can I help you calm down? And if someone says, I want a turkey sandwich, I've seen situations where nurses at one or two in the morning say, it's not time for you to eat. Yep. I go back again. If you were at home and you woke up for a midnight snack, who's going to tell you no? So in order to avoid situations, I negotiate with, with patients and individuals. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times questions are, when can I get out of here? Don't lie to people. Say, hey, honestly, I don't know. I can check with the provider. Oh, um, you know, behavioral health service has not come down yet to evaluate you. They're going to come down and talk to you. I encourage you to be open and honest. They're going to help you get care that is needed. And it's ultimately a team aspect of things. Right? So don't, don't lie. Don't make things up. Be clear, concise, and reasonable. Meet reasonable questions with reasonable answers. Have challenging questions. Redirect to a professional standard. Gotcha. So I was just thinking along the lines of that redirection. What's an example of redirecting? All right. So uh, I've, again, I've seen many situations where people try to be very challenging. And yeah. They, and they so say, I'm oh. getting it in your face, Steve. I'm, you know, what are you going to do about it? I'm leaving. Right. So for one, I would ask myself, why am I this close to a patient who could be potentially violent? Okay. So, right, so we always look at uh, different aspects of so position, posture and proximity is very important. Okay. So those are good at disengagement skills. Yeah. So, so if your positioning. Yep. So my positioning, my back should always be towards an exit, right? If I have a, a thought or an idea that someone might become potentially violent, I don't want to be in like the intimate zone, which is like within three feet. I want to be about six feet away. I don't want to be stiff. I also don't want to look so scared and defensive with my hands up. I've seen people approach people with like their hands up, like they're ready to fight. But patient perceives that as a threat to them. Look relatively relaxed, bend your knees, shoulders kind of tilted towards the patient. So you're not looking like widened, like a threat, but also you're able to have your dominant hand to come up real quick for a block if need be, and also escape out of the room. Didn't you get thrown out of the room once by like a Marine guy? I didn't get thrown out of the room. I got thrown across the room. <laughs> Okay, was so a this was before, before he was an instructor, I think, for NBCI. <laughs> Although, again, there are some situations where you just need to get out of there, um, you know, know how to call for help. And, and this is where knowing history. Um, so I always encourage everybody ever since that uh, point in time, <laughs> read through like HMP and, and historical references as, as available. Because uh, I would have known that that uh, individual always outbursts in his first few hours of arriving to the emergency department. So I think I thought I'm a very calm person. I can calm this person down. I was way wrong. Um, but I do want to, you know, encourage, discourage everybody from thinking every behavioral health patient is a violent threat. Um, I think it's a disservice to humans to think everyone is a threat. Uh, if you are very scared and timid and anxious, try to calm down, take a deep breath, choose your words carefully, Ask for help and advice. Go with a friend, right? Yeah, bring a friend. Use the buddy system if you really feel like that's a big deal. Okay, that sounds good, reasonable. 
What other tips have you got for us today? Uh, really, so a lot of uh, behavioral health interactions come down to communication skills. Uh, and when I talk about communication skills, there's different aspects of that. There's verbal, right? The words you use to send messages, paraverbals, tone, volume, and rhythm of speech, and nonverbals. That's that personal space, body language, and communicating through touch. So all those kind of put together. How are you going to communicate through touch? That mm -hmm. one sounds weird to me. So it's very clarified. <laughs> very nursy right yeah i mean so again we're, we're humans and so if you feel like it's okay and you're you're a touchy person that can communicate effectively i was never this person <laughs> but you know maybe you approach someone on the side and you can put a hand on a shoulder if you feel like it's safe for you and for them and sometimes it's better to say hey you know can i put my hand on your shoulder um, okay. Yeah. So, you know, if you're, if you're, that's in your comfort zone, it's in your toolbox. It's yep. not something that we all do, um, but it's, you know, an option. So. Yeah. And, and uh, I do want to highlight communication. A lot of how we communicate is not through um, verbal skills. True. <coughs> eye contact is big for me. I don't like it when people won't look me in the eye. So. Very true. But to that point, there's different cultural aspects mm. to consider that don't appreciate eye contact, that won't give you eye contact. And there's also, especially from a male perspective, I've had patients with extensive behavioral health history, but who were abused by men. Yeah, you and can be so intimidating. me walking over to somebody, when them sitting down, me standing over them and having really oh, intense good point. eye contact it's always makes them uncomfortable and ruins the whole uh, rapport. Yeah, and you didn't even have that intent at all, no, right? Exactly. So another good point that I just wanted to point out in general, it's always nice to just sit down. Even if you're only in the room for two minutes, sit down. It makes it gives the perception that you are more engaged with the patient's care. And I'm not just talking about psych patients. I'm talking about all patients, patient yep. having a heart attack, patient in there for, yep. you know, chest pain, shortness of breath, whatever. It's helpful <clears> to <throat> sit down and, you know, really engage. All right, go ahead. Sorry. That was a side tangent. No, and so speaking to engagement, um, you know, part of that is having great listening skills. And this is something I've learned over time is allowing space and time for answers. Right. Um, with all patients, but especially behavioral health patients, sometimes it's really difficult conversations about their history, about why they're there. And again, going back to the tasky busyness of our, our workday lives, we want to just go through an assessment really fast. Right. But sometimes Click the boxes on the computer screen. I hate that. You know, you don't make eye contact with the patient. Yep. Um, I'm really not a fan of, of documenting in time. A lot of people do that to save time, but I always go in there, talk to my patient, and then go back to my space to personally document things. Yeah. So really, uh, you know, listening, listen empathically, right? Be non-judgmental, undivided attention to them, listen to facts and feelings, allow time for them to respond. They're not maybe going to respond as fast as you would. You're a very fast talker, Dr. Smith. <laughs> I'm not. Uh, so getting answers might take longer than you want, but in the end, it'd be more valuable for them to have the time that they need. Well, it just uh, comes off as like you're in a hurry and exactly, and you don't disrespectful. Care. Yeah, like you don't care. And then a, a very true, a very but... helpful thing um, I, I've learned over the years as a nurse, a father, and a husband is paraphrase what you think you understand because <laughs> it's often very different from what. I think you should understand. Absolutely. <laughs> it's a very important skill because uh, that'll let the, um, the individual know that you are listening and also allow for clarification if you misunderstood something or if they need to elaborate mm -hmm. another key point. So it's very useful 
in and outside of work. I'm oftentimes amazed by what you and the boys don't understand. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, how did you not know that? We're all different. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So before we started doing this talk, I know you were, you were talking to me about giving the patient like a summary of what happened. And I just wanted to hear that again from you because I know if there's a conflict, you need to kind of, I guess, tie the the loop on it, you know, close the loop on it. That's what I was going for. Um, and that seems odd to me. I know that's one of the recommendations of NBCI. If you do engage with a patient and things don't go according to plan, that you're supposed to then like kind of debrief them, like how we do in SIM whenever we do a case. And I'm like, okay, so this is what happened. Like, that seems weird to me. Please explain that. Yeah. Yeah. So um, in, in physical or verbal escalations, you know, there's usually a release of energy. And I always encourage that we release that energy as long as it's safe for them and for us. Oh, yeah. What do you mean by that? What have you done? Like um, real life examples for a release? So I, I'm more comfortable with, with people over the years. And so I've had individuals that just want to scream because they're frustrated about something. And I've seen uh, different medical staff just run in and want to go towards physical holds or restraints or medicine. To make them quiet. By the way. Comfort of everyone around yep. the rest of the patients, and right? I, I used to go to those people and say, "You know what? You're in an ED. Hey, so someone's upset. Does it make you feel better to scream it out?" Yep. And I've had many people say, "Yes, I just, I'm just so frustrated. I just want to yell." And I said, "Hey, if you yell for like five minutes, will you then calm down?" And they say, "Yeah." And so I just let them scream it out. Wow. Okay. Right. And then they get that tension reduction. And so, you can't freak out as a provider, right? Like don't go in there. They're just screaming. They're not doing any yep. harm. Yes. So, so don't overreact to a situation, right? Again, if they're advancing to, towards you and that's screaming, different. that's a more physical imminent danger, right? Mm -hmm. And not just the verbal escalation. Uh, but they'll eventually have that release of energy. They're exhausted. And that is your opportunity to really reestablish a relationship. So again, going back to my experiences, I've seen uh, folks yell and scream and then they finish and they're tired and they start crying. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I would just go in the room, of course, keep my distance because this person was just screaming at the top of their lungs and, and could be potentially Yes, violent. and we have had a PA student on rotation get assaulted in the ED for not following these principles. So please do pay attention. Yeah. Um, I personally have never been assaulted. Steve has, uh, plenty of people have. Um, but as long as you follow you know, the rules, keep close to a door or an exit um, buddy system and just pay attention to that spidey sense that I'm always talking about. So it, and I would just ask patients, Hey, so what just happened there? Oh yeah. Getting back to my point. Right. So this is the whole debriefing part. This is de debriefing, reestablishing uh, the therapeutic rapport, the relationship, because that's what we're there for. We're not there to be judgy and get the red of them. Right. It's, and we're but, also not going to fix things. So just try yeah. and, you know, this is the emergency department. Our job is to rule out an emergency or life-threatening condition yeah. um, and also make sure that the patient is not going to do harm to themselves or others. So um, try and keep the peace. Yep. And the more professional you can be, the better. So I, I used to ask individuals and patients, hey, you know, what, what just happened there? Mm -hmm. Right. Whether it be them throwing chairs or screaming or having gotten restrained on the previous shift. Hey, what happened? And how can I help you? prevent getting that worked up. And often you'll find that maybe they had a negative reaction with previous staff members on the previous shift. Hey, that bleep, 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 told me I can't eat. That I lost my right to do that. Well, that's a problem because that's against human rights. Yeah. Hey, that person said I can't make a phone call until a few hours later. That person said the shower's too busy. Hey, that person said, oh, I'm sorry, your TV's broken. And they didn't seem like they cared. Well, you know what? That would make me all mad too. So you just reestablish the relationship. 
And sometimes I've seen people, I've not done this, but do like a contract with somebody. I've done, I guess, verbal contracts. Hey, if I get you another turkey sandwich, hey, if I call maintenance, come fix your TV. Hey, what if I give you an extra 15 minutes for a call? Can we both agree that's not going to happen again? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah. All right. Well, if it does happen again, even after I give you this, well, then we're going to have to take away this other thing or this other privilege, not a right, other privileges. Mm-hmm. But as long as we keep on progressing in a positive manner, we can add more things. We can have additional snacks. We can have uh, more time here. We can do other things. A lot of times patients would say, I just want to walk around the hallway. Yeah. And then I'm like, you know what? If you can prove to me over the next shift, I will talk to the next shift then about maybe getting some time out just to walk out and spend some energy. With pediatric patients, uh, my, my previous organization, which I won't name for podcast purposes, but <laughs> Um, had a fantastic program uh, with child life specialists. Yeah, those we, people agree. We paired with the pediatric unit and said, hey, you know, we have at one time, it was like a Didn't 16. Did they have ponies in the ED once? Oh, uh, yeah. We, so we had pet therapy come through. Yeah, they had ponies in the ED. Okay, so if you don't have ponies in your ED, you can always just, you know, fall back on these. Thank you, Steve, for the pony sound effects. <laughs> um, always, you know, use these skills that we've discussed. So, um, you know, Empathy, staying calm, playing, you know, being aware of your nonverbal communication, your body language, uh, allowing venting, allowing your patient to yell and scream and vent or whatever, you know, it's, they're not hurting anyone. So no big deal. Right. Um, And negotiating. I also did want to have a caveat in the negotiation point though. So make sure you're aware of the patient's history because Steve, I specifically remember a patient you had in the pediatric emergency department who was a young kid and he was like seven, right? Yeah. So a young seven-year-old male who, uh, outside of his uh, behavioral health diagnoses, uh, physically appeared to be your average everyday uh, patient. Uh, and he re- was very polite, right? Very like, polite, yes, very sir, well-mannered. Yes, ma'am. Uh, would repeatedly ask for pens or pencils. And uh, if we didn't look in the chart, which there luckily was a appropriate FYI tag, um, he would repeatedly ask for those things. And when he did get those... He would try to uh, injure himself, others in the room, and staff. Oh, stabbing people and oneself is never good. Never good. Um, so no sharp objects. So make sure you're negotiating with things that you should be negotiating with. Because if you didn't know this patient, you know he would look like just another kid who was super nice and very polite, asking you for a pencil, um, and then he would stab you with it. So be aware of your surroundings and be aware of your patient. Um, okay. So we're going to wrap this up with just some quick words of wisdom from the NBCI expert here. All right. So I I think uh, a big take home point for everybody is safety for you and others. Uh, So I encourage everyone when you're uh, licensed and out in clinical settings, uh, see if your organization has NBCI, CPI courses offered, uh, because really the foundational piece of all their courses is care, safety and well-being uh, for you and everyone around you. And they also have a skills component too, right? Yeah, correct. Right. So today we talked a lot about, um, you know, the verbal skills, uh, de-escalation, preventing some things, some outbursts and escalations, uh, but they go much deeper into disengagement skills and those things that everyone thinks about with violent outbursting patients, how to get out of situations. So like if someone's physically trying to attack you, what to do? Exactly. Cool. All right. Well, thank you guys for joining us today. The Smiths are out. Bye guys. Bye.